This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, Ukraine remains a nation under attack as Russia pours more troops into the country. Ukrainian officials accusing Russian soldiers of committing war crimes. Now, we had been scheduled to talk with the Ukrainian consul general in San Francisco. And he actually is now with us because we were. <laughs> OK, so that's what happens when you're doing live stuff because <laughs> things change. So, uh, Mr. Consul General, thank you for joining us. We thought you weren't going to be with us, but we understood that you had some urgent consultations with your country, which is certainly understandable. Can you give us yeah. a sense of, of what is going on the latest from your point of view? Yeah. Uh, do you hear me now? Yes. Yes. You're, you're yes. loud and clear. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah, so we just had um, urgent consultations with our um, government, and the, uh, we've been told that, uh, like, again, that the most important thing we need right now is urgent, urgent supply of necessary weapons. With weapons, we understand, most of all, we need to, which we call it, close the sky. So, like, how, how we can close the sky, that means we need aircrafts, we need anti-aircraft defense systems and anti-missile systems. We don't have enough of that. And while we understand that it's the United States have said that they're going to supply maybe something, but not definitely not enough. So we call on all the countries uh, throughout the world and the United States and Europe to urgently supply that. So is, right any now, that, yes, it, is any of that getting yeah. through yet? Because, you know, the countries have been we, promising we, we, over the last few days, and over the last week. But, of course, that stuff has got to yeah, come like, over the land borders, right? Right, right. A couple of uh, yesterday, and uh, we expect that through, like, today and tomorrow, that we should receive some uh, aircraft from uh, Bulgaria, from Poland, uh, because the idea is that should be the aircrafts which are... Um, which our pilots can fly, and they are obviously um, so so-called Soviet-style aircraft, right? So even if you send the F-16 aircraft right now from United States, probably that will be problematic for our pilots, right? So yeah, airplanes, aircrafts are expected from more from Europe, and uh, but we also call, call upon the United States to send us the anti aircraft systems. I'm curious about something, uh, Mr. Consul General. They, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, because we certainly are here, there's that long convoy, apparently, of, of Russian uh, tanks and personnel uh, that's, I guess, about 15 miles, perhaps uh, north, I believe it is, of Kiev. Uh, and uh, since the Russians do not have air superiority, a lot of people in this country have been raising the question, why then is that convoy not being attacked by Ukrainian military, since it seems to be waiting to pounce on the city? Uh, no, first of all, the Russians have air superiority. Right? They do now? Uh, well, of course they do, yeah. They did from the very beginning. You cannot compare the number of airplanes that Russia had and we had. I think it's like t- 10 times difference, Right. And, uh, and of course, during the fights, we destroyed, as the latest information, 29 Russian aircrafts, and they destroyed also like some number of hours, but ours was much smaller. 
So uh, it looks uh, quite easy when you see TV that there is a convoy, just go fly, destroy it. Uh, but it's just, uh, and they also have lots of inter-aircraft um, um, military uh, devices uh, in this column. So it's not that easy. That's why, and that's why we need aircrafts right now, because we need to destroy it. Well, uh, the picture of the convoy, uh, which was yesterday, I think it's not the same one today. And we're destroying it with some of the uh, drones, military drones, which we have, but also we have a limited number of those. Uh, and so, yeah, it's working, but it sh- it should have been much more successful. But for that, for that, we need the uh, the weapons. What do you Any make of weapons? the reports out there that the uh, Russian troops, at least some of them, a there's a, a big morale problem, or b they don't even know why they've really been sent to attack your people. Well, first of all, uh, the Russian soldiers who've been uh, amassed along our borders for last month. They've been there without uh, the uh, cell phones, without any connection to the, uh, well, any access to the media. And the only access to the media was Russian media. And Russian media and their, their commanders who were brainwashing them with the idea that they are going to, to come to Ukraine to liberate the country of, I don't know, Nazis or whatever else. That's why, uh, but when they when they surrender, they and they interrogated, yeah, and then they um, confessed that they didn't understand why they're doing that, but just they received the order and they, they went there. Some of them, some of them say that it's a, a legend that uh, they've been told that they're going for exercises, and uh, after that, just brought into Ukrainian territory, and they have just to proceed. But uh, we believe it's just a legend which all of they try to say. It's not. It's not fully true. Yeah. And most of them are very young, very young guys who are not really professional fighters or professional soldiers who don't have real experience. And uh, they don't understand why they have to die there. It seems pretty obvious that Vladimir Putin underestimated the resolve of uh, your countrymen and women to defend the country and defend uh, their cities. Uh, That said, if the Russians do manage to take over Kiev and, and other key cities in Ukraine, what are they going to be in for? Because if they're expecting to find a pacified population, clearly that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. We're all talking with, uh, to each other about the same thing. We just don't know what Putin was thinking about. So probably he's living in kind of his own information bubble, which he and his uh, uh, surrounders have created. So he's living in an imaginary world that uh, world that they're gonna come, I don't know, capture Kiev and uh, put some puppet uh, person who is gonna rule it. But it's absolutely uh, impossible. So even without the war uh, in 2014, when Ukraine had this Maidan, when we overthrew the president who was at that time uh, trying to lean towards Russia, right? So uh, at that time, less half a million people at least gathered on the one square. And without any weapons, they managed to overthrow. So, yeah, and now the uh, territorial defense of Kiev, they, or everybody has uh, lots of weapons to defend their city. So uh, it's, I, I don't understand what they're thinking about. It's not, uh, definitely not going to be what they want. Definitely. That's why we, we're thinking, like, eventually, eventually, definitely Ukraine will win. Like, but we just don't want to um, have atrocities, don't want to have the casualties and we need these to stop this war but for that like we need to be strong 
because the Russia also only understands the strengths, and that's it. Is, is uh, Mr. Putin, the Russians, committing, in your view, war crimes in your country? Of course he does, and uh, Ukraine has already filed a claim to International Criminal Court of Justice and uh, in Hague, and there will be more claims uh, for, to, to file to this court. They already uh, used the prohibited um, weapons, uh, like multi-rocket uh, launch systems, and uh, uh, also we've seen the report that they were using this one of the, their system of, uh, like, I don't know how to say it in English, sorry, it's like, called Burtino or Sansepioc, which are um, like fire, shooting a, a lot of fire on a huge territory when you destroy like every everything which is alive there. And uh, that's absolutely uh, unacceptable. And we already have like this permission at, at least of yesterday that there were up to 500 uh, civilian casualties and 16 children who died already. And it's just during the five days. Today is the sixth day of this war. Let me ask you one final question and we'll let you go. Uh, As you know, uh, President Biden is going to deliver his State of the Union message tonight before a joint session of Congress. What would you hope, what would you expect to hear from the President of the United States about the situation that is going on now in your country? I would say that I can say what the people of Ukraine would want to hear from that. And that would be that for him to say that uh, the decision has been taken to uh, to support the democracy in the world. And, uh, and that's why right now the battle for democracy and freedom in the world is happening in Ukraine. So they, they will support us militarily. Okay, maybe not by sending the troops, but at least for by sending the uh, aircrafts, military aircrafts, and uh, not uh, stop Russian domination in Ukrainian sky. That would be what Ukrainian people would be happy to hear. But we understand how difficult it is. Dmitry Kushnerak, Consul General for Ukraine, up in San Francisco. Uh, Mr. Consul General, thanks for talking to us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. More of our coverage on the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have fled the fighting in their homeland. We've been telling you that. We were at the Polish border uh, just yesterday on the show. Others uh, hunkering down, as you know, staying put for a variety of reasons. Uh, we have Sophia on the line with us in Lviv. Uh, Sophia, one reason you're staying is because you work at one of these these cat cafes. And if people don't know what that is, I think there's one out here actually in Silver Lake. There is? There's cats up for adoption. And right. you can oh, go okay. in. It's like a cafe. Yeah, yes. And you yeah. can have your coffee and you can have food. And then also, like, pet the cats. Are they? have a dog cafe out there too and you know um so you get happiness both ways right a meal and you can play with the animals um so that's one reason that uh that you're staying there sophia but first off because you are in lviv and it's night now so this is curfew time uh what has it been like for you lately yeah uh, tonight and uh, days before uh, station is normal station leave is controlled by our soldiers and the situation in the city where you're in, uh, if you were outside, are people sort of going about normal business during the daytime or, or what? No, see, a lot of people um, in Lviv, from Lviv and from our country come to another countries now. And uh, a lot of people from uh, Kiev, from Kharkiv, from Odessa, uh, it's really, really, truly war now, continuous in the cities. Uh, 
these people came to Lviv because it's the most safety place in Ukraine for now. And what is it like to see all those people come through and then and then even try and get past where you are, past Lviv? You know, we've seen all these people going to the other countries trying to flee. Uh, I, I'm not glad that now it's so difficult situation in Ukraine, but it's it's my country and... When people that have some problems with their homes, with their lives, uh, come to our, our city, they want to get some understand food and some good emotions. And uh, working in our cafe, <laughs> for example, I work in Cat Cafe now, and it's uh, the only one place, uh, several days, it was the only one place that was uh, working uh, for these days, yeah? And a lot of people come uh, from Kyiv, where it's truly war. And they was very happy to see our cats, understand, uh, to got um, to got just hot food and relax a little after this bad news. Is that why you haven't left? Because uh, hundreds of thousands, as you know, uh, of people from your country uh, have left, are leaving to go to Poland and other places. Is that why you have stayed because of the cats to take care of them? Yeah, of course. Our cats needs uh, needs care of uh, of people that comes uh, that comes uh, to our cafe. They need uh, somebody to play with them, and that. To, uh, to feed them, and we can't leave just twenty cats <laughs> in this cafe and uh, <laughs> leave <laughs> leave our country. I, I'm not going to leave my country now. Saying honestly, it must be difficult though to 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 not know what's going to happen, but you know for sure that that you're going to stay. <sighs> when we found out that the war has started in our country, we realized that. Uh, we wouldn't leave our country. Understand uh, that this war is the only that this was our country, and my native town is the only one place where I see uh, me and uh, my family in future. In my opinion, if each of us does the, does their best and does their job well, we'll definitely defeat the aggressor. Mm-hmm. And maybe once, I hope. <laughs> In future, we'll be able to return to a peaceful life in our homeland, in our country, and in my native town now. Do you have friends and rel- or relatives uh, in Russia? I'm curious. Many Ukrainians, of course, do. Ah, in Russia? Okay. Yeah. I- I'm not sure. I don't have any friends in Russia. But I treat this, con- this country normal earlier, understand? But for now... It's too much. It's not normal that uh, uh, their president do with our people. Sofia there in uh, Lviv, Ukraine. Uh, tonight, uh, her time. Sofia, thank you, uh, and try and stay safe. A little bit later in the uh, program, Russians, they're responding uh, to the invasion in Ukraine, many in ways you might not expect. And Ukraine puts out a worldwide request, and that request, <laughs> come help us fight. Right now, joining us is uh, CNET's Laura Hautala uh, to talk about how the social media companies are moving to try and at least block some of the Russian misinformation and disinformation. Uh, Laura, what are we seeing on behalf of some of these uh, these big tech companies? 
Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of different um, actions, a lot of which uh, started out with uh, not letting state-affiliated media from Russia make money off of their content, uh, demonetizing it. Uh, that was happening on uh, Facebook, YouTube, um, and Twitter. And more recently, uh, Facebook, Microsoft, and even TikTok have taken moves to restrict the content from appearing, um, which is a big move for the social media companies that have often in the past just tried to de-emphasize and not boost that content, uh, but still allow it to be posted. And those blocks are, are in various places. Some of them are just restricted to the EU or Ukraine, and some of them are more broad. Is there any sense that you're getting of uh, any dissension among the ranks in some of these high tech companies? Uh, you know, sometimes there's you know different factions within places like Facebook and and uh, Google. Uh, or is everybody pretty much on board with the actions being taken thus far? So far, the official line uh, is in support of this move. I haven't seen um, people taking uh, to their personal accounts to criticize this or, or leaks coming out in the press of of, of people. Uh, not supporting these moves. Um, I, 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 I'm guessing that there will be differing opinions because it is, um, you know, a, a change in the way uh, these companies have been approaching uh, disinformation and state-run media. Uh, on the other hand, people, some people have been calling for this move for a long time. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's been differing opinions on this and we've shifted to the more restrictive mode now, and it'll be interesting to see how long that lasts and if it takes any other forms. So there's the, um, you know, the social media companies and then the money that these places and these accounts can make, and they're going to, they're going to demonetize those, or they're going to take down some certain posts. What about the streamers out there and just, you know, Russian TV channels? Are those still operating? So Netflix um, has decided not to comply with a law that would require it to stream uh, Russian uh, media, uh, including state-run media. And uh, there's no word so far what will happen to Netflix as a result of that decision. Um, but, you know, they're required to because they are a foreign streamer of a certain size. They have more than 100,000 uh, users in Russia. And, uh, you know, they've decided not to do that. So they won't be carrying that media. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we'll see what the consequence might be in the future. I'm curious if there is any indication that some of these actions being taken uh, when it comes to Russian disinformation is likely to carry over for domestic issues. That's a really good point. And I spoke with an expert in social media and foreign policy who said, you know, um, all state-run media should be labeled, um, even if it's just the president's Twitter account, um, because that's media content coming from a government. Um, and so that should be across the board. And we should also uh, think about how to uh, keep people informed about the sources of their information. Not uh, there, you know, there's a possibility of, you know, blocking some, allowing others um, that that may not end up being consistent down the road. So there's, you know, these posts that can be damaging. And then I imagine there's just a whole bunch of other people at some of these apps just trying to verify various video that's been out there that, you know, right. doesn't do a lot of harm. But there was the the paratrooper guy that was on TikTok and everyone was like, look at the Russian paratrooper filming his invasion. But that was just a dude from like four years ago, like yeah. doing a parachute run. <laughs> and there was another person who was claiming to be in a Ukrainian bomb shelter, and I believe she was in the U.K., so, yeah, I mean, and these these aren't necessarily state run disinformation campaigns, but there's just a lot of 
um, fake content out there. And there's uh, news media have been putting out guides to spotting those fakes, but it really confuses the issue because if you have, you know, intentional disinformation coming from state-run media and then you have people out there, you know, doing this for the likes and the followers and just to create mayhem, then you have a really confusing um, sort of uh, way of accessing information and, and not knowing whether it's accurate or not. That's uh, Laura Hautala over at CNET. Laura, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia being hit hard by sanctions, and it seems like every day uh, still the list of companies grows that are not selling or not sailing or not doing anything involving Russia. Even Apple today saying, hey, we're not going to sell our products there anymore. Some of the big shipping companies say, you know what, we're not headed in that direction uh, unless it's for, you know, medical supplies and stuff that people, Russian people really need. Um, But they've been making runs on the banks, um, and the ruble's not worth much of anything anymore. And uh, still they've been taken to the streets, as far as we can tell, what, in lesser numbers than we saw, but we had all those arrests of the people that went out because you're not supposed to protest in Russia. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the thing is that when uh, President Biden and Western allies talk about sanctioning uh, the, the Russian government, what it actually does, of course, uh, is it, it does hurt the people who live in Russia who had nothing to do uh, with the policies of, of Vladimir Putin, many of whom, as you just pointed out, have actually even at great risk to themselves taken to the streets of Moscow and say, St. Petersburg and other places to uh, protest. And so, yes, there are long lines at banks. I saw a picture the other uh, evening of an ATM screen that basically said in many different languages, <laughs> right. you know, it was basically net. There's nothing in here. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> no money. We've run out of cash. Yeah, and that's, you know, and, and that is a, a problem. And I suspect that part of the rationale is that if the people in Russia get that riled up if the economy crashes that much that it will put pressure from the the ground up to vladimir putin except it's not a democracy so it doesn't necessarily work the way it would in a democratic country right and from every report at least that we've had on the show and we've talked to reporters in moscow the population at large is not for this war as far as they can tell this is a putin thing and so you pressure from the bottom up and you try and pressure from the top down maybe you pressure the oligarchs that are close to putin and at least some of them maybe have some indications at least floated the last couple of days that they're not all about this especially because uh you know what what do they want they want what the west has they want the yachts and they want the lifestyle and they want the money and if you close off those things well then what's the point of being the oligarch right yeah and they want and they want their their iphones and and which now they cannot get yeah yeah you know, uh, no, it, it, it is a, uh, you know, it's a really bad situation for for them. Uh, but I, I was watching something the other night, Mike, uh, that was talking about, uh, it was a report from, I think it was the BBC. I may be wrong, but I think it was the uh, BBC that said uh, uh, along the lines of disinformation, right, that a lot of Russians are plugged in, of course, to Russian media. And the official line in Russia is that what the Russians are doing, what Vladimir Putin is doing, is to counter the, quote, aggression, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, from, right. from Ukraine, which is not, of course, the case. Right. But, you know, if that's the only media that you are exposed to, which is the case for many Russians, mm-hmm. some are buying that, apparently, and, and think that what is happening is, is sort of the right thing to do, even though it's not. And then we get into this whole discussion of the um, 
intelligence officials trying to figure out, you know, what is in Putin's head. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that they've been tasked with here. We have CBS News reporter Mary Lushna in Russia, in Moscow with us right now. So, Mary, uh, again, we were just talking about um, the people of Russia wondering what's going on. Why are we doing this? It's Putin's war, right? And then here in the U.S., we've been tasking every spy that we have to try and figure out what's going on with this guy. Um, and we've kind of floated this on the show before. Is he different now than, than he was even a few years ago? Well, it appears to be so, because the recent speeches that he gave in advance of this invasion really kind of shown a different side to him to a lot of Russians, because for the first time, they've heard a different version of events, because before that, a lot of people saw his saber rattling and sort of threats towards the West, this kind of uh, him posing as a strong leader who's going to you know, bring Russia back into the orbit of superpowers. But in those speeches leading up to the invasion, he was really... Uh, attacking Ukraine. He was attacking people that a lot of Russians have cultural ties with and family ties with. And he's been saying that, you know, Ukraine basically doesn't have the right to exist and he doesn't believe that it's a real country. So, and he was very, uh, very powerful and very harsh in his rhetoric. He was, um, you know, calling the Ukrainian leadership neo-Nazis, drug addicts. That's, that's definitely a shift from Putin, who always kind of uh, posed himself as proponent of stability and a pragmatism. So that's definitely something that Russians have noticed. And that change rattled a lot of people here. You know, Mary, we were talking before you joined us about how, you know, in a, in a, in a democratic country, the sanctions that are now uh, being imposed on the Russians would get the, the populace so riled up, they would put pressure in the leadership and it would perhaps actually have an impact. But but Russia is is not a democratic uh, country. So it's questionable, right, whether or not uh, even the anger of the Russian people who can't get uh, rubles out of their ATMs and may not be able to buy some of the luxury goods that they've been accustomed to buying. It's not really clear, is it, whether that is going to exert enough pressure to change the actions of Vladimir Putin, right? Absolutely. That is, I think, something that everyone's watching right now because in russia we have to understand that i think a lot of people are against this war and they don't want to see this bloodshed that is done sort of under russia's name but it is very high stakes to protest that openly you know to take to the streets in moscow is very difficult because uh you may be detained really really quickly and you may end up in jail as well so for a lot of people they're trying to find an outlet how to do it but again the sort of the state of Russia has become so repressive in the past years that speaking out and independent voices have been silenced. So we are obviously monitoring just how big the Russian anger is going to be about this, because obviously a lot of business is going to be affected, and we're just beginning to see the impact of these sanctions that have rained down on Russia. Um, but so far, as you mentioned, it's, it's really not clear whether that's going to be enough. CBS News reporter Mary Lushna there in Moscow, in Russia. Mary, thanks. Well, we've all seen the videos of the incredible courage in Ukraine, soldiers and just plain citizens standing up against the Russian troops. And Ukraine is calling on foreigners to come and help. Howard Altman is managing editor at Military Times. Howard, thanks for being with us. Are, are you actually hearing from, from what? From, from vets here in this country that are saying, how do we get to... Ukraine let us let us at the Russians? Yes, thanks for having me. Yes, we are hearing from a number of veterans who contacted us feeling frustrated seeing what's happening in Ukraine and, and wanting to help. So they've uh, 
in some cases they've heard about this effort. I wrote about the Ukrainian plan to create the uh, international brigade that they have. It's called the, uh, the, the International Legion of Territorial Defense of Ukraine. The Ukrainian president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, created that. And so a lot of people have been reaching out. They want to go help. Where in the the process is that? Is that an actual thing, or is he just saying, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, and I need all the help I can get, or is this actually something that people can actually, you know, apply to be a part of as of yeah, right this now? Is, this is an actual thing, and I talked to one of my uh, contacts. I have a lot of contacts in the Ukraine military and government, and I talked to one of them yesterday. It said so far about two thousand people have signed up. It's not like you can just go over there and find it's actually a very uh, stringent process. They don't want people just wandering around. It's basically a, a six-step process. You have to reach out to the embassy in your country and uh, let them know you want to join the Foreign Legion of Territorial Defense um, and, and ask you know, one of the military or uh, diplomats or consuls to help there. Then you need to get your documents in order. You need an ID, a, a passport to travel, documents confirming military service or the work with law enforcement agencies and proof that you've had participation in combat. Um, you have to go to the embassy with the documents, talk to the defense attache uh, to sell any kind of visa or uh, issues. Um, then you have to write an application for uh, to take part in this, so separate from the first step. Um, and then you'll receive instructions on uh, how to get to Ukraine or what to bring they want. Uh, military clothing, equipment, helmet, body armor, combat gloves, tactical glasses, belts and vests are recommended. Uh, they say it's not obligatory to bring your uniform, but they say a uh, foreign soldier in his national uniform looks good for the international league. <laughs> and then you need to go to Ukraine in, a, in an organized manner. Uh, representatives of the embassies can help. So do you know uh, of any Americans who are now there uh, who have done gone through all that procedure that you've just articulated and are now actually on the ground fighting? I know people who are in the process of doing this. Um, there's uh, people that have already done it. There is a effort is, is ongoing and it's burdening. It's just at the beginning. They, you know, I think more people will be trying to get over to Ukraine. What is your read on where things are now, you know, day five, day six? Is this the Ukrainian military being better than people thought or are having that that fight in them because this is their country? This is their home. Is it the Russians botching the supply lines and underestimating everything? Is it both? It's kind of a, a combination. I, for a, a long time, the, well, first of all, November, the Ukrainian, uh, the head of their defense intelligence told me that Russia was planning to attack his country sometime in the end of January, beginning of February timeframe. You fast forward to the beginning of February, the U.S. intelligence was reporting that Russia was ready to go in. Now, the Ukrainians were telling me, and I've written about this a few times, that, that their assessment were at the time of the beginning of February that Putin was not ready to attack, even though he had a, a, you know, 150,000, 120,000 troops. And I think you're seeing some of this play out. What, what, the senior defense official at the Pentagon talked to us this morning and talked about how, in some cases, the Russians are abandoning their equipment, surrendering. In some cases, they don't have food or gas on them to continue this effort. The, uh, you, know, you can't have uh, teeth without tail, is, is what they say in the military, need logistics. So there's been some logistics problems. 
They've also been, the Ukrainians have put up an incredible fight. These are people who are fighting for their country. And you have, you know, you have troops, you have citizens, people making multiple cocktails, people with guns all over ready to defend their country. Now, you have to remember that the Russians have an overwhelming uh, military, that they're probably learning from what the mistakes they've made and will be able to bring a lot of disaster and increased suffering to the Ukrainian people. And so we're watching all this as it you unfolds know, on the battlefield. It was a, a very long column of uh, Russian troops that are just you know about 17 miles outside of Kiev. The, the thought is perhaps they're going to encircle the city. Uh, you're seeing an increase in, in airstrikes and missile strikes hitting uh, infrastructure. Um, the president talked this morning, President Zelensky talked this morning about 16 children were killed yesterday in an airstrike. Um, so you're going to see, and we're, we are seeing an increase in suffering. And as the days go on, things could get very bad. You have to remember that the, the, the Russians have a, a very large air force. They have not yet established, uh, you know, they have not ruled the sky. The, the Ukrainian anti-aircraft systems are still in place and still active. There's some air, Ukraine air force that's still active. Um, also, you have to remember that the U.S. and many other nations have poured a lot of arms into Ukraine. We just, just uh, recently allowed Stinger anti-aircraft uh, weapons in. There's been a number of Javelin anti-tank and other in-law systems. The Ukrainians are, are have some arms and are willing to fight, and they are standing up. Howard Altman, Managing Editor, The Military Times. Howard, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President gives his first State of the Union address this evening. Backdrop of the war in Ukraine, skyrocketing gas prices, inflation on the rise. What can he say to hit that reset button? So with us now is Chris Saliza, CNN political reporter, editor-at-large. Chris, thanks uh, thanks for coming back with us. So talk about a reset. I mean, they were talking earlier uh, before the uh, crisis in Ukraine about uh, President Biden uh, Biden having to use the State of the Union address to kind of reset his presidency as the uh, Omicron variant waned. Now he's got to reset it, does he not, to take into account what's happening in Ukraine and the Russians? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And I think uh, this has been a tough uh, patch of time for uh, presidential speechwriters because you've had uh, two weeks ago the State of the Union speech would would that Biden would have delivered is very different than the State of the Union speech he's going. We expect him to deliver to deliver tonight. I mean, usually these State of the Union speeches, and there's exceptions, but usually they're pretty domestic policy heavy. They tend to read a little bit like a laundry list of domestic policy priorities. That was, you know, three weeks ago the speech Joe Biden was going to give, trying to find a way back to get Build Back Better uh, legislation passed. Um, trying to put some wins up on the board for Democrats who are up in the midterms. Well, now, uh, you know, we have the largest incursion in Europe since World War II uh, with Russia into Ukraine. And while Joe Biden has been adamant that he's not going to get U.S. troops involved there, uh, it still commands a huge amount of his time and attention. And I would assume a considerable amount of the speech. I'm, I'm actually interested uh, how much of the, is it half of the speech? Does he start with it and then go and then leave it? You know, I'm, I'm interested to see what he does. But what we know is 
this speech is going to be a lot more foreign policy driven than it would have been two and a half weeks ago. And what is the uh, framing that gets used, right? Is it a, hey, the EU followed me in this uh, coalition with Mm -hmm. the sanctions? Or is it, you know, the good versus bad guys thing, uh, democracies, autocracies? I think it's I think it's the former um, mostly. And I think what Biden is going to say is, look, I've done this before. I I know international diplomacy. We have a united coalition against what Russia is doing. We are imposing strict sanctions. We we need to let those do their work. The political backdrop, though, you can't lose, right? Joe Biden is in the low 40s in job approval. His approval on handling of Russia is in the high 30s. And, you know, he he understands that the American public's appetite for more American troops in foreign theaters is extremely low. Remember, Biden is the one who pulled all the troops out of Afghanistan. Obviously, that was somewhat disastrous in the way that it, it wound up unfolding. But he did that because he understood public opinion has very much turned against involving American troops in foreign uh, 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 wars. So it's a tough line to walk in that you know, sanctions are not the easiest sell in the world to people. There, there's a, it's a little bit harder to understand. It requires patience, right? They, they, they work better on the 30th day than on the first day, um, or they have more cut, uh, impact to them. So I think it will be mostly I am leading an international coalition that opposes this. It is important that we do this for to defend democracy worldwide. But, and that but's going to be in there, but, you know, American troops are not going to be fighting in this theater. So we're going to have, as always, a response, right, the Republican response. But there's also a response from the president's own party. Yes. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, one of the uh, members of the self, well, not the the squad, which is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and three other liberal uh, female members of Congress, uh, Rashida Tlaib will deliver a response that, you know, will be not what Joe Biden wants to hear. Uh, he obviously would like to speak as the lone Democratic voice. Uh, I think that Tlaib's response won't get a huge amount of attention. It will get some attention. It will likely say that Biden isn't committed enough, uh, particularly on spending on domestic policy. And we also have a response by, which will get more attention by the governor of Iowa, a Republican named Kim Reynolds. I think that Kim Reynolds will she will deliver a response as is as is traditional right after Biden finishes his State of the Union. It will be shorter. Um, I think it will be much more domestic policy focused. I think it'll be focused on crime. It will be focused on COVID and mitigation and kids in school. Some of the issues that we saw work really well for um, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, during his race in that state in 2021. I think you'll hear Reynolds talk a lot about domestic policy and a lot about kids and, and education in schools and COVID and how to handle it. Chris Eliza, CNN politics reporter, editor-at-large. Chris, thanks. Well, there's been a lot of research about climate change, and the warnings from researchers have gotten more and more dire as the planet continues to heat up. Problem is, though, that, well, governments seem to be mostly ignoring the warnings, and that has some climate scientists so angry they're ready to go on strike. One of them, Professor Bruce Saglavovich, Massey University in New Zealand. Uh, with us now, Professor, um, what would a strike actually look like oh good good day and thank you for having me on on your program um really what our call is for is for is for climate change scientists to look critically at their role and responsibilities going forward after the most recent assessments from the ipcc have come out and the question we're asking given the 
crucial finding of this report, which I, I think it's worth just stating so your listeners are aware of it. Essentially, what it says is the cumulative scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and the health of the planet. Any further delay in concerted anticipatory global action on adaptation and mitigation <clears throat> will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. Science has done its job. The information is clear and unequivocal. We need to make decisions in the next decade to avoid moving into a world of dangerous climate change. Under those circumstances, we feel it is irresponsible for climate scientists to simply document the continuing warming of the world. Our work needs to be oriented towards fixing what is a broken science society contract. Science has fulfilled its responsibility. It is time for the leaders of our nations, of our communities to take action to avert dangerous climate change. A starting point would be to say no, no more uh, IPCC assessment reports because it'll take another six or seven years and we do not have another six or seven years to wait for action. So the idea, as I understand it, is what? You would all collectively stop doing further research or at least publishing the results of the research? So, so what our analysis uh, is based on is we identified what are the various options available to climate change scientists. And in that, we identified the first option is to carry on business as usual. We continue gathering data, presenting evidence in the hope that governments will act. Clearly, that is untenable. There are um, many climate scientists who are focusing more and more attention on the social science aspects and providing insight into how we might respond to this crisis. And uh, in addition, many um, are taking um, to forms of advocacy and activism. But to date, despite those efforts, there's no tangible change. So we feel that the the third option is more radical and building on the, the second option I've just outlined is to call for a moratorium um, on climate change science and research that merely documents the decline and to focus attention on mending the science society contract. And a starting point would be to say the seventh assessment, which would kick into gear next year, is not <laughs> the appropriate way to go. And it's to recognize, and I, this is really crucial, the work of the IPCC, which is the interface between science and policy, in our, our view, is a stellar example, perhaps the best example in human history of science and policy coming together. This started in 1988. We have, for over 30 years, developed a common understanding between science and policy that climate change is real, what the impacts are, and what the responses should be. It's now for the politicians who take that policy advice and that science evidence to act. Yeah, so you got to make them pay attention. I mean, how frustrating is it for you? Do, do you ever just want to, like, grab world leaders and, and shake them, providing you can get past the bodyguards? <laughs> I think it's more, you know, what we recognize is, you know, three... Uh, climate change scientists down in uh, Australia and New Zealand have, um, you know, a small voice, and especially at this time with 
cataclysmic events in Europe. Um, our, our purpose of our work is to reach the climate change science community and the global change science community more generally to, to compel introspection and reflection and action amongst the science community because we cannot wait. There's a, there's a need to mobilize civil society, the private sector, the science community so that politicians act. The, the, the future of the planet is at stake. And this is not an exaggeration. There is a robust body of knowledge that underpins this finding. And are you personally optimistic or pessimistic? I, I have children and um, in, the, in their mid-20s and, and younger kids too, who I hope will have children too. So I have hope that decisions will be made that um, secure a future for my children, for your children, and for the species that we share this planet with. Um, I'm not um, uh, naive about the science um, policy uh, and polit political interface. I've worked as a policy advisor, I've worked in government, as well as being an academic. I, re I recognize the challenges and opportunities. I also recognize the work of many politicians that is good and uh, for the good of people and the planet, but uh, we clearly cannot carry on with business as usual. And we're condemning our children and other species that we share this planet with to a dangerous future. And climate change is woven into every aspect of our lives. It is not a green issue. It is a matter for our people in cities, in remote rural areas along our coastlines, way up into the Arctic and down to the Antarctic. It is interwoven into every aspect of life. It's tied into the drivers of biodiversity loss and how we are unraveling the ability of the ecosystems upon which we depend. The clean water, the clean air, the conditions that make our communities livable, vibrant and exciting places to be. So uh, we have a long way to go, but it's going to require the mobilization across civil society, the private sector, and the science community. And our role is to try and to uh, call attention to what should be our role and to, I guess, mobilize a critical mass of action amongst the climate science community to take a stand and add our voices to those of, of many citizens, to the youth, to indigenous peoples, around the planet. Professor uh, Bruce Glavovich there, Massa University in New Zealand. Professor, thanks for talking to us. More in-depth to come uh, tomorrow.